Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to interview episode number six of my 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. Hello, so first of all, I'd like to welcome all you to interview episode number six of my 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and as per usual with these interview episodes, I'm going to skip my normal introduction uh, for what I normally do with this podcast, um, you know, because this is something different from what I usually do with my podcast, but just in case, you you know, this is like the first episode you're listening to and you have no clue what the show's all about, um, I basically take a different 60s song and artist each week and talk about my opinion, analyze the arrangement, and then dive into the history behind the song and artist I do each week. But today, that's not going to be what I'm going to be doing today. I'm going to be doing something a little bit different. Um, now, today, since this is the 60th episode of this podcast, I'm going to be talking to... I'm actually going to be doing an interview episode since... You know, I'm going to want to do something special for episode 60 of this podcast. So um, today I'm going to be talking to somebody who is legendary. I mean, this guy, um, you might not know his name per se, but he was behind some of the most well-known, some of the most world-renowned, biggest, most insanely popular classic rock slash British invasion songs from the 60s and he the interesting thing about him is that he wasn't a songwriter nor was he a musician and he wasn't a singer he wasn't a part of a band he was actually a producer now this is going to be really cool because first of all I've never interviewed a producer for my podcast. The last person I interviewed was more or less a songwriter. He wasn't, I mean, he, he was part of a production team, but he was more on the songwriting side. Well, this guy was a producer. So this guy really knew the ins and outs of how a record was made from what kind of microphones they were using to the, the, you know, how many tracks they were using up on the session and what brand tape they were using, and just all of that. He was really the one behind all of that sort of technical kind of engineering aspect of, you know, recording music since he was very much in charge of all that. And um, the other interesting thing about him is that um, not only was he a producer, but he also worked extensively in the British Invasion. I've never interviewed anybody on my podcast before that was involved in the British invasion. So this is going to be really, really cool. And also, the interesting thing about him is that even though he was a part of their British invasion, he actually wasn't British. He was an American producer that got a start in America, actually out here in Los Angeles, and then he gradually made his way out to England even before the Beatles came out to America in early 1964. So he was really there pretty early. And in this episode of the podcast, I'm going to talk with him about all that. I'm going to talk with him about how he kind of got started, how he first kind of got his feet wet in engineering and producing when he was living out here in Los Angeles and how he even wound up, you know, recording and producing for artists in England and, you know, how he wound up working with The Bachelors and Chad and Jeremy and The Who, because he produced My Generation. And he also produced He Really Got Me by The Kinks. I mean, this guy, you know, has recorded some of the most insanely just incredible songs from the 60s, all within the sort of classic rock British invasion vein. And he also recorded the Easy Beats Friday on My Mind, so... Um, I'm going to shut up for now. I'm going to get to this interview. So without further ado, I would like to introduce you guys to the sixth person that I'm going to be interviewing um, on this podcast. He is none other than the one and only Mr. Shell Tommy. <laughs> 
Michelle, how you doing? It's been a uh, rough morning. Sorry about that, but totally all kinds of shit happened this morning. So, anyways, here I am. Ah, uh, thank you, Shell. Well, first of all, I want to say that it is an honor to have you as a guest on my podcast, a Millennial Throwback Machine. I must say, I mean, you just had an incredible career as a producer over the past. 50 years and um i will say that um i think a lot of my the you're probably one of will be one of the most interesting guests that i've had on my show so far because i've interviewed you know songwriters and you know singers and artists from the 60s but i haven't interviewed a producer yet and i gotta be honest with you there are a lot of people out there and even people that might listen to my podcast who are confused as to what a producer actually is as far as music is concerned and it's funny because back in the 60s the role of being a producer and an engineer was completely different you know they had two completely different um jobs but nowadays with the advents of computers and you know pro tools and logic and just you know how easy it is to home record these days the role of a producer and engineer seems more or less the same in today's world so I want uh, before we get into the history behind your career as a producer back in the '60s, I want you to give my listeners a little bit about a uh, good description on what what your role or your job is as a producer. You know how it was back in the '60s and how it's kind of evolved into what you currently do right now. Well, I think that as a producer then, as compared to now. I can, first of all, I've got to say that producer means different things to different people. That, right. Uh, I am what the trade normally calls a hands-on producer. Right. As opposed to producers who check in a half hour a week. A uh, hands-on producer is a combination of what a producer and director does for films. Right. So that um, I find the, the artist. Anyway, I find the artist, uh, obviously sign them for whatever period it's going to be, uh, choose the material, um, choose the arrangements with them, and uh, rehearse, and go in and record the stuff, and uh, I'm there from there through all the overdubs and the mixes, and finally the master. Right. So that, that's the role of what a producer used to be. Um, I'm not sure that actually applies today. Today, a producer, generally speaking, will also be uh, an engineer because the situation today is that uh, most producers, or however you want to call them, don't record everything at the same time they build. They're doing a track-by-track build-up and using effects and all kinds of stuff that... Uh, was unavailable uh, in, in, back in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Right. And it's also interesting because I think one other thing is that one thing I think hasn't really changed is how a producer handles the costs of, you know, studio time. And, of course, I, I'm, back then you also had to deal with, like, the American, uh, you know, the musicians' union and dealing with handling out the contracts for all the musicians on the recording session and handling the cost of studio time and all and all other stuff, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's the other thing I should have probably added is I had a total uh, rebi- rather responsibility for the budget. Yeah, right. Absolutely. It had to be within the budget. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, so one other thing I want to say is that what makes you so interesting, Shell, is that not only are you one of the last surviving producers right now of the 60s because i gotta be honest with you i think i think i hate to hear that sam yeah but you're probably yeah um you know because a lot of a lot of you know producers from back then are you know like you know mickey most and george martin and joe meek especially people in uh you know in the in the 60s are are not here anymore i'm very honored and happy no i think the word you're looking for is right exactly um you know um i'm you know i'm very honored to be able to get to talk to you right now um, because I mean, yeah, I mean, 
instead of doing it through a Ouija board. I understand that too. Thank yeah. You. Um. Also, um, I want to say that you, what also makes you so interesting is that you were one of the very first American producers to sort of take a chance and decide to you know leave America and go to England and produce artists over there and you were with two bands at their very early stages in their career and one of the bands that you were with was at literally the height of their creativity and the height of their popularity and that was the kinks and you were with them you know all throughout their very first hit single to right around 1966 with with uh you know you were there from you really got me all the way to sun uh to around sunny afternoon and also, no, actually, <clears throat> actually, it was Waterloo Sunset was the last one I did. Oh, okay, yeah. And also, um, you know, with the Who, you know, you were there, you know, at the very early stages when they were just sort of developing their sound and they hadn't quite broken out in America yet. You know, you produced My Generation, and I can't explain, and the kids are all right. And also, you know, what also makes you so interesting is that along with the really, you know, hard rock stuff like the Kinks and the Who and the easy beats you also dabbled into like folk pop and vocal group pop you know with groups like chad and jeremy and the bachelors and i think that's really quite astonishing that you had you know such a variety of um artists that you work with at that time and you weren't sticking to just like one specific genre of music and uh you, well, yeah and i'll, and I'll it's easy answer easy answer is that i had more interest than just one uh, genre of music, and I've always liked uh, country and folk and all kinds of other things. You just mentioned the Pentangle, which was one of my favorite bands to do. So, um, and one of the great folk groups of all time. Um, uh, it it was um, it's, variety was really is 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 more interesting than doing the same thing. Right, again. exactly. Um, so also, but. Before we get to how you exactly came to England, uh, England talk about sort of your beginnings, because um, what I what I understand is that you were born in Chicago, but you grew up in the Los Angeles area. Tell me a little bit about your sort of formative years and exactly how you got into producing uh, before you headed over to England. Um, tell me a little bit about your sort of beginnings and how you kind of, uh, you know, got really got into producing engineering living in L.A. in like the 50s. Well, the producing, I got into it because I became a recording engineer while uh, I met uh, an English guy named Phil Yend, who right. was uh, owns Conway Studios, the original Conway Studios in Los Angeles. Right. And uh, we started chatting, and he knew I was interested in music, and I had actually been working for ABC Television. And um, he said, are you interested in, in learning how to be an engineer? And I said, yeah, absolutely. So that's how that started, and uh, three days later, I did my first solo session, which was a real uh, uh, thrill, I think maybe is the word, because uh, I was really thrown in, thrown in at the deep end, and fortunately came out still breathing, so that was that. Wow. Um... And, like, and like, like most producers, <clears throat> sorry, like most engineers, that I've ever met, they all think that they can do better than the producer they're working right. for. I was no exception. So um, I started uh, producing on downtime, which Phil was very happy for me to do, and um, uh, which led to me going to England because of Phil. I thought I, I, I intended to go just for about five weeks because I was like 22 or something, and uh, wanted to go before the world was passing me by, and I couldn't get a chance to do all right. that. And um, consequently, went over there. I had some contacts who told me people to talk to. And um, what happened was I got an appointment with uh, Dick Rowe at Jacka Records. And, um, and before I left, my friend Nick Finney, who was the uh, A&R uh, main guy at Capitol Records, he knew where I was going, and I said, you know, I'm going to try and work a couple of weeks because I don't have a whole lot of money. And he said, uh, hey, take my demos, and if you can use them, tell them you did them. So that's what I did. And I told Dick Rowe I had done the, the two demos I played for him, which happened to be Lou Rawls and the, and the Beach Boys, and he said, you start today. So 
by the time they found out it was all BS, I already had a hit with the bachelors and um, consequently stayed on for the next 16 wow. years or whatever it was. Wow. Um, now, let's. Uh, I actually want to backtrack a little bit. When you're in Los Angeles, did you ever get to work with any of those L.A. studio musicians that later went on to become known as Wrecking Crew, like Barney Kessel? Well, I, 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 was, I recorded all of them as an engineer. Absolutely. Yeah, like, you know, yeah, they, Barney... They, they, were con- they were constantly at Conway. So, yeah, I recorded... In fact, the only one I ever... That was part of the Wrecking Crew I never did was Carol Kay. It was the, the um, bass right. player on a lot of that stuff. He, he never appeared. Everybody else did. Right, and also guys like Sandy Nelson, Preston Epps, and Richard Podolor and some of those other musicians that were kind of around the L.A. scene at that time, you know, Plast Johnson, Earl Palmer, you know, Red Calendar, all those guys that were, you know. But one thing I wanted to ask you is that in L.A., okay, so this is the late 50s. um, At this time, Phil Spector was around in Los Angeles at this time working with a group called the Teddy Bears recording a song called To Know Miss Olovum at uh, Gold Star Studios. And... I was reading up on this. You went to Fairfax High School. Phil Spector also went to Fairfax High along with Lee Burns-Stoller. Did you ever have any interactions with him, or maybe you do you have like a story that you did you ever run into okay, Phil? I've, I've answered this. Okay, I've answered this question a bunch of times. I knew Spector and at Fairfax. I didn't like him then. Wow. I've never liked him since. Uh, the only thing that's ever surprised me about Spector is that it took him so long to kill someone. Wow. Uh, he was he was not a nice person. And he was weird, to say the least. And um, uh, and uh, and I was very friendly with uh, Lester Sill, who did a label with him called Sill. Right. And uh, he unfortunately did some uh, unnice things to Lester, including uh, not um, well. Anyways, it's, that's another story. So it's good. Not one of my favorite people. Oh, okay. Wow. That's really interesting. Okay, so um, when you were working uh, for Decca Records in the early 60s in, uh, in England recording The Bachelors, um, were, were most of those songs that you recorded for Bachelors, are they done live to like three to four track or um, or, were they, or, were, or was it was it like where you just like record the whole orchestra in like three or four takes? No, I'm... I record. I recorded everybody together. Right. Yes, and as did everybody at that time. Nobody was doing one instrument at a time uh, during the fifties, sixties, right. and seventies. I'm not sure about the eighties, but I think that's where it started to go the other way. But uh, at that time, we recorded the entire band or the entire orchestra all at once. Right. Also, one other thing I wanted to mention is that. Um, along with you being the, one of the first American producers to be working for a British record label in the early 60s, another uh, American producer who also got hired on a DECA around the same time, might have been a little bit later, um, his name was Burt Burns. Did you did you ever have any interactions or any, uh, you know, encounters? You know, I never met, never met Burt Burns. I know who he is. I know all about him. Uh, friends of mine... Uh, have spoken about him extremely well. No, I never ran. Wow. Yeah, because he, you know, he was also on on Decca, you know, producing, you know, groups like them and Lulu, and you know, the and he was, you know, he again was an American producer that decided to take a chance and you know go to England and you know produce groups, right. uh, you know, uh, for you know for for uh, for that for Decca and um and also um. Okay, so you're working for Decker Records, and then, uh, um, uh, uh, let me hang on. Let me just uh, interject here that I was actually not an employee of Decker. Right. I made it clear from day number one that I was an independent right. producer, right. and they were paying me a weekly amount to be an independent producer, and I was getting royalties, which <clears throat> at that time was pretty much unknown. For any producer mm. in England, so I was, if not the first, among the first to ever collect royalties on the records I was doing. Yeah, and um, but I'm okay. So while that was happening, uh, you actually got a demo from this group called the Ravens, and they, you know, would 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 later on change their name to the Kinks. 
who is the person who brought that group to your attention and how did you wind up uh, producing for them? I was on Denmark Street at a publisher uh, visiting some friends of mine and Robert Weiss was one of their managers walked in with the Ravens demo and he said, did anybody here listen to this? And I said, I'm here, I'll listen. I liked what I heard and we proceeded on from there. I took, at that point, uh, being an independent producer and uh, my time at DECA, after they turned down both Georgie Fane wow. and Manfred Manaby, was uh, going to be limited. I took the Ravens, uh, or then Ravens, into Pi, and uh, that's how they wound up in Pi. Wow. And yeah, and also, um, let me just, uh, I'm, I'm going to point out some facts to you right now, and you let me know exactly uh, the accuracy of these facts. Okay, so um, when the Ravens changed their name to the Kinks, uh, they had one single out, and that single originally uh, was not very successful. It was a song called Long Tall Sally, so um, you really... Yeah, this is the, yeah. I, I can stop you right here. I did not choose that. Right. That was demanded by... Uh, by Pi, I'm not sure if it came from the A&R guy or from Louis Benjamin, who was running Pi, and knew absolutely nothing about music. But however, that's what I was asked to do, so I did it. Neither the band or I were very happy with that. Right, and also, um, when it came down to record, you really got me. Uh, there were two versions of that. Um, one version, when you when you first went in the studio, you weren't very happy with it. It was more of a bluesy kind of a little bit of a slower version of it and then the second version of the song you know which was the first version was recorded at Pi Studios and then you then you re-record the song at IBC Studios is that correct that is correct right and uh it was you know and and since Pi you know initially you know refused to like you know refund the session after they already recorded the song once at their studios uh you know the session at IBC was self-funded by um, you and 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 the Kinks manager, right? That is correct. Right, and also, um, you know, when this uh, the distorted sound on you really got me. That was a result of Dave Davies using a razor blade and basically slicing the cone of his amplifier with the grill on it with the razor blade. Is that correct? That's also correct, and also he encouraged us to, as we walked by this little amp, is to kick it. Wow. So uh, it would make it even crunchier. Right. So uh, that's, yeah. <laughs> right, and also, um, on You Really Got Me, uh, the, the musicians were Dave Davies and Ray Davies on guitar, Pete Quife on bass, um, Bobby Graham on drums, and Arthur Greenslade on piano, right? Wrong. Really? It was uh, not not Ernie not uh, Ernie Greenslade. Uh, uh, um, I mean Arthur Greenslade. It was uh, Perry Ford. Wow, that's really cool. I did not know that. Um, also, um, you know, before shortly before you uh, you were working with the Kinks, um, you know, uh, you were actually playing. You uh, you actually produced a session for Chad and Jeremy. Um, you know, and yeah. uh, and you and you and you recorded it at a uh, uh, CTS Studios, right? Or it's it's that's yeah, no, CTS. Yeah, CTS Studios, and um, that's actually a really cool song. I like that song a lot. It's got this. I love the I love the the uses of brushes on this on that the, that the drummer uses on the song. I love the you know all, all the horns that are that are on that record and the strings. It's actually one of my favorite. Um, Chad and Jeremy songs. Uh, what do you What do you remember for the session for that song? Well, it's, 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 they worked out. I, I enjoyed them immensely. We had, um, I wish I. I'm sure you got considered at your fingertips. I can't remember who the, the arranger was. They just did a great job in the arrangement. Um, uh, Summer song and Will Lead for me obviously became you know big hit. Right. And uh, and. <clears throat> They had a, a sound uh, I liked a lot. They um, they both could play very good acoustic guitar, uh, and the full orchestra we had with them uh, made the whole thing really worthwhile. Right. It was great. Yes, and also, um, 
you know, at, okay, so once once you kind of got the ball rolling with the kinks, then you then you recorded it all day and all the night and tired of waiting. And t- by the way, tired of waiting is actually my favorite um, King song that they did this period along with Waterloo Sunset. I'm tired of waiting is just, you know, it's, I feel like it's one of the, one of the more relatable songs, uh, you know, from, you know, from the, uh, that era specifically, you know, with the Kings, um, the whole concept of how, you know, he meets this girl and then, and then the girl decides not to date him yet. And then he kind of keeps him waiting. It's very, I can kind of hear the frustration in his voice. I feel like it's, you know, it's one of those songs that it's, uh, you know, it's it's actually one of my one of my favorite um, King songs. Well, I'm glad to hear that. It actually, it, uh, it, it, we were recording that, and uh, the high A and R staff had that slated as part of an album right. that we were doing. And I called them. I said, "You got to pull this out. It's it's, it's got to be the next right." Single. So that's why we're not being the next single, and I'm I'm pleased you like it. It's a great song. It's always a great song. Right, and most and most of the King stuff after you really got me was recorded at Pi Studios, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. It was all all recorded. Right. There. Also, um, you know what what was your favorite um English studio to work out of? Because I noticed a lot of the songs that you recorded, um, you know, in along with like My Generation by the Who. And uh, Easy Beats Friday on my mind were recorded at IBC Studios. Is there, is there? Is, uh, well, I think you just you just hit it. IBC was my favorite studio, uh, probably uh, followed by um, hell. What's the other one that's uh, the other made Olympic? Right, Olympic. Yes, my, probably second favorite. And uh, but I, there, there were actually I, I used a whole lot of studios. I used the Roundhouse. I used Morgan. I used a uh, whole. Whole bunch of right. Yeah. Um, also, uh, talk a little bit about uh, the Who with me, because um, wh- from what I understand is that when the Who kind of first got together, they were originally called the High Numbers. Uh, the um, the Who were originally called the High Numbers, and then they changed their name to the Who. And then wh- when you first started to work with them, they they said that you know I can't explain was a de- deliberately trying to sort of rewrite um you really got me or trying to create sort of their own sort of version of it and um you know uh, yeah i've heard i've heard the same story i think it's it's basically there's some truth to it uh i the first time i ever heard i can't explain with somebody played it to me over the phone it's like a minute and 10 seconds wow long. i said yeah i really i really like that uh let's let's hear it more with the band and so that's how that came about we heard with the band uh, but you say the, the who came about because uh, I mean why I found them or, or signed them in the first place was uh, because a, a lady that was working part time for me was friendly with one of their managers, the kid Lambert, I believe, in particular, right. who uh, got her to ask me if I come and listen to the band at a where they were rehearsing at a church. I said, sure, I'll do that, and I mean, I think. It, me seriously about uh, four bars to say yes, I'll sign them. They're the I thought they were the best um, actual rock and roll band I'd heard right. since I left America. Right, and um, yeah, and also um, when the Who produced uh, when when they when they got in the studio to produce My Generation, um, the lead singer uh, Roger Daltrey used this very distinct like stutter in the song, and also it was also one of the very first uh, rock and roll records ever to have a bass solo on it. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how those two things kind of came about? Um, what's, what was the thing? They have a what on it? Um, the you know, lead singer, Roger Daughtry. Act, uh, yeah, yeah, I heard that. So what second thing? Um, the say? bass solo, John Entwistle's bass solo on the song. Oh, bass solo. Yeah. Oh, oh okay. Well, came about because that's the way we arranged it. Uh, the stutter came about because I, I always rehearsed the band before I went. I wanted to know pretty much what we're going to do. I try to leave 10% for uh, something uh, wonderful to happen on the session, which uh, often it did. And um, he, he was joking around and did a stutter. I said, you know, just leave that in. I think it's really interesting. So that's how it, uh, it, it stays in, and which you may or may not know, the BBC initially banned right. it because it was, uh, it was um, 
uh, offensive to stutterers or stammerers or whatever the case right. might be. So, um, yeah, but uh, yeah, the, the what what you, the record you hear is is the result of what we rehearsed uh, within. You know, I said probably ninety five percent because the other thing you're not your weapon mentioned is that I spent uh, three or four hours with Pete on his own in the studio right. uh, making sure that we um, uh, got all the, the the resonances going and uh, and uh, all the, the various things bouncing around him. I wound up using, because uh, I was testing, I wound up using three different mics right. on the, the, the guitar so that we could pick uh, all that stuff up. Right, and also, um, in uh, in 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 uh, when the Kinks recorded, like you really got me, and all the and all the night, and most of their hits. Like, do you remember like what brand uh, guitars they were using? Were they using like you know uh, Gibson guitars or Fender guitars, or were they using guitars that uh, were um, not that were actually European brands? Because I know that a lot of the uh, British invasion bands at that time couldn't really get access to a lot of. Fender and Gibson guitars because, you know... Okay. You're testing my memory here, and I can't say this, that it's not perfect. What you know, I'm going to tell you is that all the guitars, as far as I remember, were American. Wow. Okay. Uh, that's really interesting. And also... In fact, I can't even think of a European brand of guitar that anybody used for, for that matter. Right. But, um, so, and just, they were all in very, very, you know, Telecaster, Stratocaster... Um, uh, Fender, Ray, whatever. I mean, uh, they're, they're all American as far as I'm concerned. Right. Also, um, in a throw like 64 and 66 with the Kings, uh, were, was it all, was, was it all basically done on four track or was there kind of an evolution from four track to eight track and maybe like 16 by 1967 or was it mainly all done on four track? Most uh, everything, all those early bands were certainly done three and four right. track, and that was it. All we had eight tracks didn't actually come in or at least available, as far as I can remember, until about 1969. Right. And that's the first thing I used it on was uh, the pentangle. Wow. Um, and then after that was 16 track and obviously 24 track. Right. So, uh, it, which came a, little, a lot quicker, but. Uh, up until then, it was three and four track only. Right. Um, also, um, talk a little bit about uh, the Easy Beats with me, because the interesting thing about them is that, you know, they were an Australian band. And what was so cool about them is that, you know, um, you know, along with, they were, because uh, the Seekers were obviously the first, you know, big Australian band of the British Invasion to have huge hits you know, America and go from Australia to England, but the Easy Beats managed to have one huge hit song in like 1967, a song written by Harry Vanner and George Junk on Friday on My Mind. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about exactly like what was it like to work with them and you know how you know, what 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 year what year did you say? Um, 1967. 57. Well, that's that's when it became a hit in America, but I th actually you're right because it was recorded. Oh, excuse me, I didn't record I didn't record that till. I'm guessing about 64. Oh. Because... I don't know where you got 57. If I'm didn't come over until, until the 60s. I'm dying. I didn't get to England until 1962. No, I'm talking about uh, the Easy Beats with Friday on my mind. That's that's the... Yes, I'm talking about Easy Beats Friday on my oh. mind. I recorded it with them in England around 1964 or 5. Really? Yeah, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about uh, working with them because I'm curious as to what sort of your experience with uh, working with that band was. Um, they, they were, I, I really liked the band. They were watched to me by their manager and uh, whoever was currently managing them at the time and, and the, the guy who signed them and all that stuff. And uh, I liked I liked the sound. I liked everything. I did not like any of the songs in particular. So I asked them to go and write songs and come back and play me what you've written, you know, like once a week. Right. And then unfortunately it went on for about five or six weeks until they came with it. But in my mind, I said, that's the song we're going in right. three days from now. So that's how 
right. That is that is really an incredible song, I must say, because it goes it, it goes through all these like really cool key changes and it just it's just it's so cool because it just it has all these different sections to it and it's just like it's all over the place, but it really it kicks butt. Seriously, it's just a, it's just an incredible song. Um, yeah, well, my thing is it holds up still today, right. so it's a really good record to hear. Right, and um, and also um, one question about that song was that was that song also recorded live the whole thing or? Um, oh no, live. That's I the way the only way I recorded was to record everybody at the same time. Right. Um, that's uh that's really interesting. Um also, um, you know, when in during the British Invasion show there was just so many bands at that time that were just really just killing it. I mean, there was, you know, Jerry and the Pacemakers and Billy J. Kramer and Dakotas, there was, you know, Manfred Mann, you know, um the Hollies, the Dave Clark Five, Hermits Hermits. Um, is there was there one particular British invasion band that you wish you really, really wish you would have would have liked to work with, but you know, unfortunately, you you never got to work with them, or you wish you really got to work with them, or is there one particular group that you know you you kind of you kind of wish that you were you know wish that you got to produce? Um, uh, well, let me just uh, let me answer this in two parts. First of all, the the band that I did work with and had a bunch of his with, and eventually had their songs being used in tons of commercials was Creation, who I think was, should have been superstars and unfortunately broke up before they became superstars. Right. Um, uh, as far as bands I wish I'd been able to record, um, Creedence Clearwater, wow. um, Queen, um, The Eagles. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a bunch of bands I like to have recorded and never got a chance to. Wow. Um, yeah. So, anyways, um, with uh, with sunny afternoon, that's that that's also really an an incredible song too. Um, can you tell me one one really cool thing about that song was, uh, that that introduction that you know that descending um guitar part in the right. beginning. How did that How did that come about? Uh, the Ray, who I'm sure you have read, is was one of the most prolific songwriters uh, extant at that time. Right. And uh, he could literally write five or six or ten songs a night, whatever. Anyways, every two days, uh, he would come in and play me stuff. Right. And he played on, he played on the piano, uh, not the guitar. And um, uh, I heard about four bars of uh, Sunny Afternoon. I said, that's our next number right. one. So it, it was, it was obvious. I mean, just it was one of those things. I mean, the moment I heard that, this is, yeah, okay, we we can do that. Right. Um, also, uh, can you talk a little bit about how that particular band, the Kinks? I I read that you know they they what happened in the mid '60s that is, is that they unfortunately got banned from touring the U.S. and you know the and you know and what happened was that I've I've heard about this. They got. Uh, a couple of members got into some some fights, you know, when when they were when they were like, you know, recording and touring. Can can you talk a little bit about that? The only time the Kinks, to my knowledge, were fighting was during some of our sessions when Ray and Dave would get it on, and at which time I'd call a coffee break for the rest of us and come back right. and and we resumed recording. Right. Uh, what happened in America? Is totally. I have no clue how that any of that came about. I wasn't there with right. them. Uh, I believe all that the initial tour was arranged by Larry Page. I believe. Right. And what happened there, I honestly don't. Right. Know. Um, that's really interesting. Um, all right, Shell. So, so um, I think we're uh, you know. Um, we're uh, we're almost done with this interview, but before uh, we close out, can you uh, talk a little bit about exactly what you're what what do you what have you been up to these days? Because I'm curious as to um, you know, what kind of products you're currently working on as a producer, and um, you know, sort of okay. give us. Well, I I took the openers and I came back to uh, America. I did a few things, and uh, honestly, I was bored with all the. 
I mean, I, I hadn't realized how much stuff I'd been recorded and how much time I'd spent in the studios. I took several years off. Um, in the last couple of years, I decided that it was fun being back in the studio. Right. And that, albeit that the entire music business has changed. Right. Oh, yeah. Radically. Oh, yeah. Than a hundred, a one eighty. Oh, yeah. Than what it used to be. And nobody records live anymore. And they do it, you know, with, it's all digital and, and like that. And I thought, hell, I, you know, I've kept up technically what's going on. And, uh, so currently, actually, I've been working with a, Canadian girl named Sarah Fisher, mm-hmm. who is an actress and uh, was in uh, a Canadian series called Grassy, which is the same series that Drake was in. And uh, she's very popular there with lots of followers and all her social uh, uh, social media accounts. And um, so we've just done we've just finished three tracks with her which are i think relevant for today's market and um, they've only just been they're just being and just been released uh, because they've they've been tied in with the women's world cup um, with canadian girls and with the american girls because she's i said canadian but spends a lot of time in, in america and she's done some films and all that kind of stuff here so We've got uh, three tracks that uh, just just came out, wow. and uh, and everybody seems to be excited about them. In fact, the the gentleman who sent it to me, his name is Tim Cod, and is one of the absolute best of all time PR people who does promotion and and everything else, and is currently working on the Women's World Cup. Does a blog, and uh, he released the blog telling everybody about it and uh the last time i heard it was over five million views of the blog wow. so um so we're hoping that uh, that will translate into um uh spins and buys and all that kind of stuff on the, on the right exactly all right shell well um i think that's about it uh for the questions i have for you um by the way um just one more thing um I, I understand if you're not really into social media like Facebook or Instagram or things like that, but is there any, let's just say like, um, you know, uh, any, any of my listeners might want to like find you online, maybe you have like a website or, or something like that, uh, a URL, um, link. I have, well, I have a website, it's just shelltownly.com right. and, uh, they can, certainly email me there. I actually don't go to the website very often. Right. Um, but I will, if I get there, I'll try to get there eventually and answer questions. Um, I, I've, I, I mean, the reason why I hope everybody will understand this is not a, I'm not trying to be negative right. about this, but the reason why I don't have uh, an account with Facebook or any of those kind right. of things because Fortunately, as lots of other people in my position have found out, they start getting questions, repetitious questions, uh, and they're all. It becomes very difficult to respond. To right. Them, so. Exactly. So. All right, Shell. So I chose. Right. Exactly. All right, Shell. Well, um, again, it has been an honor and it has been a pleasure uh, to have you. On my podcast. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Sam. What's it, what's it called? I don't even yeah, know. it's called the Millennial Throwback Machine. And you can find uh, this podcast on the Apple Podcast app. And you can also find it on Spotify, too. And by the way, one more thing I wanted to mention before I close this out. We actually met each other um, once before, uh, like about four years ago, at a zombie show. And that was... And that, yeah, no, I remember. Yeah, that, yeah, was, remember, that, was, that yeah. was really cool. I was, you know... And yeah. and it's funny because somebody next to me told me that you were there, and I just you know I was very ecstatic to meet you, <laughs> you know. And I'm sure you were. No, I, I, I no, I remember the meeting. I remember you well. We were standing in line waiting to go see the zombies and say hello. Yeah, you know, right. I I thought that was you must have thought that was cool that someone you know as young as me is you know you know actually recognized you and really and you know and you know and actually knew about a lot of the you know the songs and artists that you worked on. You know that must have been very flattering. 
Well, that's uh, always nice when people remember what I've done. Yes, that it is pleasing to see. Yeah. Um, anyway, all right. You, you say it's called the uh, Millennium. The millennial, the uh, millennial throwback, throwback machine. machine. So. Yeah, it's okay. it's right. a millennial throwback machine. Um, it's on the okay. Apple Podcast app and Spotify. That's where you'll be able to okay. find it. No, I'm sure I can. I'm sure I can access it. Not problem. All right. Okay. Great. Well, nice to speak to nice you. Nice to speak to you too. And um, right. And I'll look forward to listening to it. So whatever. When's it going to be released? Oh, it will be out uh, this Sunday. So that's 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 the that's oh. the that's I put these out every week. You know. So. Oh, okay. Great. Okay. Good enough. All right. Bye. Thanks. All right, shell. Take care. All right, bye. Wow, there you have it, folks. Shell Tommy, original producer uh, for the Kinks and the Who and Chad and Jeremy and the Easy Beats um, and the Bachelors. Wow, that was a really cool interview now, wasn't it? Um, also, by the way, if you listen to this interview of this podcast and you have some feedback for me regarding it if there was a question that you wish i could have asked shell but i didn't get the chance to um or if there is your he had a favorite part of the interview that you like the most or there is a piece of information that i talked about in the interview of this podcast that was the most interesting to you um please email me at sam at icloud.com or you can also follow me on instagram and reach out to me there too at I Hurt Oldies and check out more of my original music at samwilliamsmusic.net. Now, like I said before, this podcast, my website might be going down within the next couple of days because, like I said before, I ran into a little bit of a financial issue. So, um, you know, if it does go down, what I'm going to do is that, um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if I'll be able to let you know if if it goes down because it might it might go down after I upload this podcast episode. But, if it does before that, what I'll do is I'll basically swap out the link to my website with a link to my SoundCloud. So that way you guys can still check out more of my original music without you actually having to go on my website just in case it goes down. But as of right now, it's still up, you know, so um, I'll, you know, like I said before, if it goes down, I'll just edit the text description of this episode of this podcast and swap out the link to my website with a link to my SoundCloud. So that way you guys can still check out my original music without you having to go to my website. And also, um, by the way, as per usual with uh, each episode of this podcast, um, if you'd like to check out some of the music that Shell produced for bands like The Kinks, The Who, Chad and Jeremy, and The Easy Beats, um, I will definitely post links to the songs he produced in the description of this episode of this podcast. And just just so that way you guys know exactly what songs that he produced here are some names of some of the songs that he has produced for those groups um the kinks the hits that he include that he produced for them included you really got me all day and all the night tired of waiting sunny afternoon and uh, a well-respected man and for chad and jeremy he produced a summer song and willow wheat for me and for the easy beats who produced friday on my mind and for The Bachelors, he produced a song called Charmaine. And, uh, you know, and uh, yeah, so those are just some songs that he uh, produced. And all the songs are going to be in link description of this episode of this podcast. So all there's there's going to be links to all those songs right below uh, the, uh, the, this episode of this podcast. And uh, and yeah, so as per usual, another thing you can do is that I'll throw in the songs that we talked about in this episode of this podcast, also in my official Spotify playlist for the show. And uh, you can you can find those songs in uh, the um, the the and by the way, I'll put that link in the description of this episode, of this podcast to the official Spotify playlist. So that way you guys can check out the songs I talk about on the show and uh, you can uh, you can check them out and you can have an idea for what kind of songs I should talk about the show moving forward. And yeah, also, a wonderful thing I'll include the link in the description of this episode of this podcast is the official podcast merchandise store. Now, in that store, what, what the cool thing that I have is that I have this really cool logo, which is basically um, uh, the, the, the catchphrase I say at the end of every episode and keep on trucking tie-dye font with the name of my podcast on the bottom. 
I have a, re- a lot of really cool items in that store. I would really appreciate it if you can go on there and, you know, at least check out some of the items in the store. You don't have to purchase anything, but if you found an item you like and you really want to show your support of this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you could please purchase something from the store. And if you do, um, definitely send me a picture on Instagram or through email of the item that you purchased and just a few sentences and how much you really love my show. I would love that. Yeah. So, yeah. So anyways, so um, I'm also, by the way, if you like what I'm doing with this podcast and you're listening to the show through the Apple podcast app, I would love it if you could please write me a review and tell me how much you love my podcast because the more good reviews I get for the show, uh, the more my show gets pushed into, uh, you know, the new and noteworthy section in the podcast section on the Apple Podcast app. But yeah, so anyway, so I'm Sam Williams, and thank you again for joining me for the sixth interview episode of my 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. Until next week, police! Keep things groovy. <laughs>